speaking on CFMU-FM 93.3. There's a lot of books out there. I mean, any math book that has the word fun in its title makes me wince, I must say. Welcome to Radio Free School. Magical, mystical, magnificent mathematics on Radio Free School with special guest Bill Higginson. I'm a former secondary school mathematics teacher. Um, I have been a professor at the Faculty of Education at Queen's University in Kingston for about 30 years now. My experience as a teacher and as a as a professor at the university level has largely been uh, working with people who, who deal with adolescents, you know, children over the age of 12 or so in high school, secondary school settings. Um, and I'm aware in my thinking and preparing for this interview that a lot of what I'm assuming is really going to fit best if it fits at all with people who are thinking about, you know, kids who are eight and older at least so let me let me choose my stories carefully to uh, reflect a couple of experiences uh, which i think are indicative of some important uh, principles that that happen to involve younger kids because i may not get to them uh, later a first example which comes out of uh, out of my own experience as a parent and i should say that that has been very influential over the years and informing my my views about uh, this area not least because i have a single only one child who's a a, a, a woman and uh, was a girl in her youth and uh, that sort of parental window sensitized me to a lot of the gender side of the teaching of mathematics which in some settings is not at all attractive to say uh, to say the least but this story goes back to um, times before my daughter went to school um, and she had a, a playmate um, from about the age of three uh, these were professional friends of ours child about the same age uh, working couples uh, daycare but requiring some parental supervision for the end of the day, etc. So I often found myself a duty parent uh, observing these three- and four-year-olds interacting, and uh, that was quite fascinating, as it would be for any any children of that age, but especially so uh, from what, because of my interests and, and the uh, nature of the intellectual abilities of, of my daughter's young friend. 
uh, I'll call him Aaron here because I haven't have, don't have his permission to tell this story. But Aaron was uh, gave every evidence of being a, a prodigy. Uh, I know the literature of of precocious children in in mathematics fairly well, and he was right at the extreme end of that. He uh, he could factor telephone numbers, which are seven-digit numbers, when he was three. And he had an absolute fascination, particularly for numbers. He was also very gifted in language and music. He's, he's fulfilled that promise in the, you know, the time since that, uh, his childhood. He, uh, he's gone on to a very distinguished international career as a, as a very gifted young uh, professional mathematician. Um, but this particular story, I think, illustrates a number of things about the culture and, and uh, children and so forth. And it was in the early 80s, and a man called Horace Freeland Judson had just published uh, two books. Um, one book was a history of uh, microbiology uh, from the 60s and 70s called The Eighth Day of Creation. And it was a massive book and very well done, and I think won a Pulitzer Prize in the U.S. And the second one... Um, was a, a book essentially on um, on the philosophy of science. He'd, he'd met so many scientists in um, in this work on you know, the history of microbiology that he decided to write a second book, which was beautifully illustrated uh, on you know sort of introductory philosophy of science. The first chapter in this book was called "The Rage to Know," and. Uh, Judson felt uh, compelled, he's a very gifted writer, he's a, basically a, a journalist, uh, to have a compelling example right at the beginning of, uh, of his book. And uh, he begins it with the story of a friend of his who told Judson in very excited terms one day that his daughter had discovered prime numbers. And... Uh, Quite independently, and, and this this had it quite excited her. And her father thought this was a very significant, understandably, a very significant uh, thing for a, for a young child to do. Now, Judson, dealing with even with intelligent lay people, people who are interested in the philosophy of science, feels compelled to explain just so everyone un- understands what uh, the nature of this accomplishment on the part of the young girl that prime numbers are numbers such as, and he gives some examples, uh, they're numbers such as 2, 3, 5, 11, and so forth, uh, which have only two factors themselves and one. And the only problem here is that he gives one relatively large example, which is 1,023. Now, uh, that, uh, as I say, was the first chapter of a book by a major publisher. It was also published, that particular chapter, as, a, as an article in the distinguished American Journal of Ideas called the Atlantic Monthly. And uh, once again, although presumably some other editors had a look at it, we got 1,023 listed as, uh, as a, prime, a prime number. And it's not. And uh, so as I'm babysitting my daughter and her friend, I just read this magazine article, and I knew that my young friend uh, Aaron would, uh, would, would enjoy this. So I said to him, Aaron, do you know what I just read in the Atlantic? Uh, I read that 1,023 is a prime number. Now, and at this point, 
parent's eyes light up and a big smile comes over his face and he says, Oh, no, 1,023 is three times 11 times 31. And he was absolutely correct, and he was quite intrigued by this possibility. And later I heard him telling my daughter that some man had said in the ocean, silly man, that 1,023 was a prime number. So here we have this strange you know, conflicting situation of the best of the intellectual slash print academic world uh, failing a number of tests in this relatively low-level mathematical task that lots of presumably quite well-educated editors and the author, who has later became a MacArthur Fellow, for instance, the so-called Genius Award, um, don't know their mathematics well enough to pick this up, but at the same time, a very young child is so fascinated by these ideas. And he was unusual, but I don't think he's that unusual. And so we have this strange paradox that a huge teacher just is not even competent. They don't like the stuff. Um, they shy away from it. And yet there are small, small percentage of, of the population for whom it's a source of great joy. Is it possible to sort of change those, those, those numbers a little bit? Could we have a greater percentage of the population see mathematics as a source of satisfaction, a source of pleasure, a source of insight, a source of understanding. You are listening to Radio Free School on CFMU. On a hot, hot day in July, five green and speckled frogs sat on a speckled log eating some most delicious bugs. Yum, yum. One jumped into the pool where it was nice and cool. Then there were four green speckled frogs. Goop, goop. Four green and speckled frogs sat on a speckled log eating some most delicious bugs. Yum, yum. One jumped into the pool where it was nice and cool, then there were three green speckled frogs. Gloop, gloop. Three green and speckled frogs sat on a speckled log, eating some most delicious bugs. Yum, yum. One jumped into the pool, where it was nice and cool, then there were two green speckled frogs. Gloop, gloop. Two green and speckled frogs sat on a speckled log, eating some most delicious bugs. Yum, yum. One jumped into the pool, where it was nice and cool. Then there was one green speckled frog. Goop, goop. One green and speckled frog sat on a speckled log, eating some most delicious bugs. Yum, yum. He jumped into the pool, where it was nice and cool. Then there were no green speckled frogs. Are the schools doing a good job of teaching math? I find that a tough question to answer. I mean, if I'm blunt and brave and forthright, the answer is definitely no. I feel badly saying that because it can sound as if I'm making sort of cheap criticisms of teachers. And I have enormous respect for many classroom teachers in, in public institutions. Uh, they work tremendously hard. They're able people. They're good with kids. In many areas, they do terrific things with them. I happen to think the nature of the structure is not good, and their own personal background is very frequently such that their math is an area that is 
relatively badly done by now. You know, having said that, there are a lot of teachers who shouldn't be allowed to stay there and do bad things in lots of other areas besides math and things. You know, it, it's it's pretty rare for a child to go through an extended period of public education and to have one year after another of positive experience with the subject of mathematics. So, you know, with that caveat and in my guilt moods when I think, why aren't schools doing a better job of teaching math? It comes down to the fact that people like myself are are not doing as good a job as we should, perhaps, I don't, but it, it happens to be a, a really, a, it's a tough problem. It's a problem with a lot of history, a problem with a lot of momentum. And so those folks who've chosen to take their children out of uh, public education and to homeschool them, I have uh, I have a lot of, of, of sympathy for their perspectives quite frequently. Will they do a better job? They might. It depends on a number of things, who they are and what resources and background and imagination, their relationship with their own children, who their own children are, and so forth. Because there's no doubt that there's a, a range of ability mathematically. And there's some analogies you can make with music here as well. And I think mathematics is very much like that. Uh, it certainly isn't the aim that we want to turn everybody into a research mathematician, but it would be really nice, I think, if we eradicated a lot of the negative uh, feelings, because they're very limited. They have a powerful effect on uh, on many human beings, uh, I think. So, yeah, if it may be the case that mom and dad, partners, uh, whoever are involved in the uh, in the homeschooling of, of children have many of the same difficulties that classroom teachers have in terms of their relation, their own relation to the subject. That makes it tough. Uh, having said that, I mean, I think often people who homeschool bring a lot of uh, a lot of ability. Uh, I mean, that's a tough decision to make in in many ways, and and you don't you don't make it light in in the experience that I've had uh, with homeschoolers. And often, one of the reasons you you make that decision is because you you feel you do have some uh, some resources. So, yes, it's certainly possible. I mean, there are stunning positive examples. I don't know. I mean, maybe this is a specialized area where I know some things that some of your listeners wouldn't know, but certainly that there are fascinating examples of very good mathematical experiences coming out of homeschool settings. Uh, let me just mention one of those because I think you'd find it of, of, of interest. I'm, I'm obsessed, I'm interested, verging on obsession with paper folding. It's connected to some of your other questions. We might get to it shortly, but I find it as a, as a fascinating sort of cultural uh, area, um, an area that's uh, great great fun to do with kids and it raises all sorts of fascinating artistic uh, and mathematical questions about six or eight years ago I was told about a young boy who was quite well I guess he was an adolescent at that time who was quite good at, at paper folding and particularly from a mathematical perspective I ended up going to a this one of the same origami conferences as this uh, as this chap uh, did and he w- he was quite a quite a fascinating young man now he was he w- he had been homeschooled uh, i don't think he saw a formal education system in any form until he was um about well in his teens anyway he 
showed little interest in his father, who has devoted a very big chunk of his life to uh, to homeschooling his son. His he was a sort of Summerhillian version of of education in the sense of the child doesn't show interest, then you don't try to force them to be interested in things. This is my understanding, at least I, that's I've heard this mm-hmm. secondhand. But we have the, you know someone who until his early teens really has shown little interest in mathematics and doesn't know very much, would not have done well on any of uh, the the tests uh, if he had been in a school setting. At 17, this young man, Eric Demain, was in a doctoral program at Waterloo in computer science. I think he's now about 22. He's just joined the faculty at MIT. He's seen as a stunningly brilliant mathematician, computer scientist. He's, he's relatively easy if you have access to the Internet to ch- you know, chase down his interests. His name is Demain, D-E-M-A-I-N-E. His first name is Eric. You can flush him out of the Internet pretty easily and see the sorts of things that he, he works on. And it, to a certain extent, it reflects his, uh, his youth and his background. He, he works on things like the mathematics underlying paper folding, profoundly difficult mathematical questions which he interprets in, a, in the medium of paper folding, or computer games. He's just proved some things about you know, how difficult certain classes of computer games like Tetris are and, and so forth. So he's, he pops up in the popular media. He was on the front page of the Boston Globe shortly after he arrived there. And, and there are a number of other examples like this as well of homeschooled kids who, who really have done very well. The International Mathematics Olympiad team. Um, my understanding is a couple of years ago the the top American student in that in that competition uh, and one of the top students in the world was a homeschool student from Massachusetts. So uh, there, there are certainly encouraging signs there. Though, not to give a list of all male examples here. About what 15 years ago or so, there was a a lot of press coverage in the British media around the top student qualifying for Oxford University that year. I forget her surname. Her first name is Ruth, but, and she she was homeschooled, and she was very young. I think she was 12 or 13, and she outscored all these you know, 18, 19-year-olds coming out of sixth form applying for these competitive scholarships to, to Oxford and things. And uh, her father, again, uh, had, had devoted very high percentage of his time to to working with uh, with this child and he had de- declared when she was a very young child that you know she would be exceptionally capable mathematically I, I don't think he himself was you know professionally worked in that area but uh, so there, there there are lots of examples of positive examples and and I think uh, you know going back to the people who make this decision it's possible to have mathematics be a very positive component of a, a healthy homeschooling uh, situation and particularly now with the internet uh, there are, there's access to to some resources which really weren't there before and that uh, that certainly could could help
are listening to Radio Free School. Why do so many people hate or fear mathematics? A lot of it has to do with with bad experiences they have in schools. I watch this, uh, the, the undergraduate students that come through Queens are in many, many cases quite extraordinary young people. They're capable, they're idealistic, they're energetic, and so forth. But many of them, at least relatively, uh, are quite are quite anxious about math, and uh, I, I work, as I said at the beginning, largely with secondary school people, but a few years ago I did some voluntary, uh, some optional workshops with uh, some of my colleagues on, on mathematics, and we called it the uh, the joy of X, and we'd, we consciously set out to try to you know, show to people who might feel that mathematics was going to be problematic for them as teachers, that there, were, there was a lot of potential, and we... I tend to be an optimist and thought we might have some impact, but the reaction was so strong and so much more positive than I, I had had expected that it really, uh, it really impressed me. And the, the the thing that came through time and time again was that these students remarked that they had never seen people who were so positive about the subject as uh, the you know the eight or ten people that we brought in in that seminar series. We selected them carefully, admittedly, and they were on you know particularly capable people, I think. But it was just this uh, this idea of presenting yourself, and I'm really covering another another question here where you asked about what should the first words a math teacher say to his or her class. I think you, you need to present yourself as a teacher, as a parent. This is this is interesting. This this has potential. I enjoy this. I like this. This is an area where I get satisfaction. That's pretty rare, I think. So that if there's if there's one thing that we could do, which I think would help change this situation, we try very hard to to have the people who present mathematics to to children to be to be positive about it. And you can't fake this. I mean, this is one of the, one of the dangers. Of course, we you know we live in a culture of superficiality of uh, commodification, and there's a lot of books out there. I mean, uh, any math book that has the word fun in its title makes me wince. I must say. I mean, they, they, uh, if there's a if there's a message around learning mathematics, uh, and if there's also a message around how to help your kids learn to cope with with uh, the culture and to get to be successful, however you want to define that in life, one of the things they have to learn to do is to resist the, what C.H. Waddington called the conventional cow dung, the conventional wisdom of the dominant group or whatever his, his acronym for that was. And and we, we live in a culture which is saturated with ephemerality, a culture where the you know the engines of commercialism have this insatiable appetite. I mean, we have uh, our glorious leader to the south. Apparently, this man uh, can say, you know, we must go to war with Iraq because our economy is in danger. I mean, I, I just this is absolute. How how can these things be said? So there's a political dimension here. I tend not to be very political to begin with, but. The, 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 even these conversations, a lot of these these questions in my mind are are much closer linked to important political, philosophical, and even spiritual uh, spiritual issues. So that I, I, one of the perhaps one of the first places that we can recognize this and and help kids learn to to work on it is to what I call going deep. Let's not 
let's not buy into the we have to have the next new thing, we have to have the latest, the most expensive, the glitziest, or the plastic package and all that stuff. Let's reflect deeply on a few things, choose them carefully, make sure they're important things, and then think deeply about them. And if, if when you do that, and mathematics is a wonderful area to do that in, I think, because in a, you don't need any... You know, if you're going to be a good musician, and music is an area where... Some of these things can be learned as well, I think. But you do need a certain set of resources there. You know, violins don't appear on trees, and, and you're assuming in many cases a certain sort of, of socioeconomic support system for some of these things. But mathematics is, well, I, my definition of mathematics, or one of my definitions of mathematics, is that it's a gymnasium for the mind. Etymology of gymnasium, it's an interesting one. It's a Greek root, as I understand, and it refers to a situation where athletes exercise without the encumbrance of any attire. They're naked. So in my view, mathematics is the intellectual equivalent of a, of a gymnasium. It's where you're not interested so much in the particular implementations of ideas. Uh, you don't worry whether you're, compo you're a composer thinking about which sequence to strike keys in or to ring bells in, or whether you're a chemist worrying about the ways in which certain sorts of molecules can fit together or whatever. You're interested in the, the abstract, a, a layer down. And uh, it's what Einstein called the democracy of the intellect. You know, that there, there, are, there are some areas where, because of socioeconomic factors, some people have a lot of advantages over other people. Mathematics is not one of these areas. We have interesting examples and i suspect there's you know the, the ones we see are just the tip of the iceberg of kids who have mathematics a mathematical ability that you, you you could never predict i mean sometimes mathematicians marry each other and they have a child who's clearly capable mathematically and you say oh yeah that's well, that's to be expected but there's also cases where parents have no particular talents in that area, and they produce this child who, you know, just sees the world that way. The, the, the young uh, child I referred to, my, my Aaron, I, I said to him one time, you know, Aaron, where, where, do you, where, do you, where do these ideas come from? I and mean, this is a child who was factoring telephone numbers when he was four. Take him down the street in a, in a sled in the wintertime, and he's fascinated by the numbers on the, on the houses, these sorts of things. He's also could read in three languages before he went to school. He was prodigiously talented musically and so forth. But where where do where do these things come from? And I, I think it's I think it's an indication that we are as a species particularly well oriented for perceptual reasons, uh, physiological reasons, to sort of create the world, to see the world in, in certain terms, and to create symbol systems that reflect our insights. So that in a strange way, quite contrary to the popular conception, we are naturally mathematical animals. And to the extent that we, we deny that, the extent to which we frustrate that, we're, we're denying something that's, that's natural about ourselves. And to that extent, we're doing something which is, uh, which is quite unhealthy. Oh, no. 
Contact Radio Free School at grassroots at hwcn.org or mail P.O. Box 19, 1280 Main Street West, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, L8S1C. Oh.